I have such a passionate belief that everybody has one of three things. We all either have time, treasure, or talent. And whether it's to just be a good friend, a good listener, a good hugger, or a good teacher, or lawyer, or doctor, it doesn't matter, but everybody has a gift. Welcome to the Good Around Us podcast. Here we share stories of people doing good in communities. I'm your host, Stephanie Keeley. Jody Greenlee began her career as a nurse in pediatric hematology and neonatal intensive care. In 2000, Jody retired from nursing to foster two medically fragile Guatemalan children. She served as board president of Children of the Americas, an international medical relief nonprofit from 2001 to 2009. And for the past 20 years, Jody travels twice a year to provide medical and humanitarian services in the rural mountains of Guatemala. In 2009, she founded Finding Freedom Through Friendship to provide services to impoverished women and children in emerging countries. Jody is a true servant leader both in her local community and abroad. Here's Jody. Welcome, Jody. Thank you so much for joining. Thank you. It's an honor and a privilege to be here. Well, I am excited for you to be able to share with us about finding freedom through friendship. I would love to open with you sharing the story of how this organization came to be. Well, it, it is one of those stories that... Um, was really an aha moment for me, as Oprah used to say. Um, I had been working in Guatemala at the time uh, for the last 10 years as a board member and board president of an organization called Children of the Americas here in Lexington that took annual medical teams to Guatemala. And during the time of doing that, uh, my husband and I and family fostered two children from Guatemala uh, that I brought over for surgeries that they could not attain in their own country and that we could not do on the team because they were complex. So I entered into starting Finding Freedom Through Friendship with what I thought was a secure knowledge base on how to start a nonprofit and run it. Um, and as they say, fools tread lightly because I certainly didn't know nearly what I should have. But um, the foundational moment for starting it was at 8.30 at night in uh, a very, very hot environment uh, where our team of over 100 volunteers from the United States were finishing up our surgeries that we were donating that day. We were walking out to catch the last shuttle back to our hotels and Guatemalan hospitals are surrounded by security fences and guards, especially when we are there because we typically get thousands of patients needing our attention. And um, those people will wait outside and sleep outside on the sidewalks until we can get to them. So the guards have to make sure that only a certain number of people get in at a time and they can't let people in at night because we're not working all night. So for some reason, this one mother named Maria pushed her way past the guard and made her way to myself and our small number of 
uh, team members that were still there. It was dark, we, there's no ambient light and there was only one spotlight. And just out of the dark, this tiny little Mayan woman carrying a baby on her back and a three-year-old attached to her shirt and an eight-year-old next to her came running up to me, waving a piece of paper. And the thing that stopped me and made me notice her was that she was angry. And Mayan women don't typically exhibit anger very well. It's not part of their culture. Um, if they are angry, they generally suppress it. And the fact that she was angry and yelling at me really stopped me. And the guard was running after her, trying to make her leave. But long story short, um, she said to me that her son was dying. She had been told by local doctors that he was dying. And she needed medication that the villagers had told her we had available. And I had to tell her that we had no pharmacy at the moment. It wouldn't be open again until the next morning. Well, she had walked through the dark for almost three hours to get to us. And that's not what she wanted to hear. And she broke down. Um, so the group of us um, scavenged through our book bags and got her some snacks. She hadn't eaten that day gave her some Cokes. I gave her a piece of paper, giving her a pass to get in the next morning so she could get the medications she needed for her son who had end-stage hepatitis from contaminated water. And um, she did come back the next day, but I didn't actually see her the next day. The connection there was that I had asked her that night to write her phone number down on a piece of paper so that I could call her later on and check on her well-being. The only piece of paper we had left was a napkin in my backpack. And uh, most people in Guatemala will take their last few dollars and buy themselves a cell phone so they can stay connected to family. And she did have a cell phone. She wrote her number down. I never saw her again. And so I just assumed that she had her needs met. And I, I really didn't even think about her while I was in Guatemala for the rest of that trip because we were incredibly busy. We went on to do 150 surgeries that day or that week and see thousands of clinic patients. But I got home a week later, put my suitcases on the back porch because I often traveled back with bed bugs. And uh, a week later, I went to search my suitcases for any final thing and found the scrap of napkin with her phone number on it. And I thought about her and wondered how things had worked out for her. So I had a friend call her and based on the fact that she had gotten the medication, it had helped her son, but she went on to tell my translator that she had been abandoned by her husband. She had four children and uh, lived in a, a abysmal hut that is something most Americans wouldn't let their dogs live in. She had no running water or electricity and she was only 23. She was raising a niece who had been abandoned by her own mother and she had no income. And that's one reason her son was so sick. She was not able to afford medications. So she was my pivotal aha moment when I realized that this organization I was with was doing phenomenal things life-changing things to operate on women and children who had no other recourse for getting surgeries. But there was more to the story of these women. And I wanted to reach deeper and find an organization which was not within the capability of the organization I was currently with, 
that could reach deeper and give these women the things that they needed, the basic tools to raise their children with all of the fundamental needs. You know, in nursing school, you learn what the hierarchy of human needs are. It starts with things like basic shelter, nutrition, education, air, water, everything that an American mother or a European mother would take for granted that their children are going to get. These women had no access to these items. So that from that, you founded um, Finding Freedom Through Friendship. Yes. And this particular mother was our very first client. We call them participants because Mm -hmm. they are participating with us in their journey. This is not a hand out. It's a hand up. And so we named the organization Finding Freedom Through Friendship, which turns out to be a very burdensome name for most people to remember. So we call it (laughs) FDF because these women find the freedom to be the mothers and the people they're meant to be. And um, in order to do that, they need these very basic things like food is one of the first things we start off with in the way of monthly donations. And then we start educating their children. We then go on to secure land for them and we uh, purchased the land and deed it to them and their oldest daughter. We built them a house and then we graduate them after they have started a micro business through uh, either a grant or the funds from us. So we put them in the best possible position within their communities and within their uh, limitations or talents uh, to be able to be the women that they're meant to be because of there is no more profound relationship in a female's life if she chooses to be a mother than to be the best mother she can be. And these women are significantly hampered in their abilities to do so through this deep ingrained generational poverty that they have no hope of crawling out of. And so what your organization does is truly give the tools through that framework of food, education, land, micro business, you give them agency to own their life and their futures. Way to put it. I may have to adopt that phrase. (laughs) That's a beautiful way to say it. Yes. And there are um, untold millions of these women in Guatemala to help. And then in um, 2017, through the creative genius of our CFO, Marguerite Doyle, who's Egyptian, but lives in Lexington and is a former IBM mid-level executive, um, we branched out into Egypt because she is Egyptian by heritage and she had an excellent support system in Egypt. We could be in every country in the world with our business model if we had support staff or volunteers willing to help us. We have a very minute presence in Tanzania and in the Dominican Republic of the Congo, only because we have people there willing to help us do our work. But this model of helping these women takes generally two to three years of being in their lives. And most nonprofits don't have that ability to do It's a walk-in, walk-out situation with most nonprofits. Um, But in Egypt and Guatemala, we do have the ability to have either volunteers or low low income that we are able to pay our participants who are either Egyptian or Guatemalan and know the culture 
to be in the houses with these women every month and be in a relationship with these women to help inspire them, offer them hope, sustainability, and uh, all the tools that they need. And then eventually we graduate them. So you say there are thousands who could use this help, who could be potential participants. How do you select participants? Do people apply or do you seek out participants? We don't seek them out because we would be flooded far beyond our financial resources. Um, Our typical, at least in the last few years, um, annual budget is based um, completely on donations and the few grants that we get. And for 150,000 a year, which is our typical annual budget, we are able to do phenomenal work because of course it doesn't take that much money. So our facilitators are known for the work that we do and they get a lot of knocks on the doors. So when that happens, they call me and um, we have a formal application in writing that they have to take, they do a home visit, which is an initial screening. They take pictures of the situation. They peek in the cupboards. They look under the beds for hidden resources. They investigate the family, interview family members. And then we come back to the table and we have two wonderful board members determine if we can take someone. You want to be very careful that these women aren't um, brought to the table of asking to be one of our participants through a family member Mm -hmm. Um, through opportunity that they don't need. And so you really need to validate their level of poverty. You also need to make sure, because there are many in any country, there are literally millions of women who are so poor that they will never be able to take advantage of the gifts that we offer. They may not be intellectually able to run a micro business which is one of the final requirements. So we have to screen them from the front end for a skill that we might be able to help them with to develop an income source once they are healthy enough to do so. Uh, Most of them come to us in such a malnourished state that their brains really aren't um, as keen as they would be for you and I because we're we're nourished, we have vitamins, Mm -hmm. we have our health. Um, your body does follow your brain. So if they don't have a skill or their children aren't educated enough to help them in a micro business, then we can't always take them. About 20% of our women, we, we know that's just not going to happen for them. Um, so we do look at that, but about 80% need to be able to go on and earn their own income. Now we'll build them the store on the land that we've purchased for them and set them up in that business and show them how to do it. But eventually they need to fly. And um, so whatever resources they have, um, we bring those to the table. Most of our Mayan women have this amazing ability to weave their own fabric and then embroidery on this fabric. So we bring that to the table and say, if you'll do these weavings for us, we will offer you a fair trade wage. We'll bring them in our suitcases or ship them to the United States. And we have an online store where we put these fair trade um, items on and sell them. And so maybe that's their business. The poorest of the poor usually know how to do that. I read from your website and uh, one of the case studies, and it really 
for one was so moving. Um, and I'll, I'll post it in the show notes because I think it was, for me, it was a great example of how you put this framework to, to life, um, for an individual. It was Ava in Guatemala and a mother of six, her husband had passed away. She was malnourished. Um, everything you've, you've described. Um, so she didn't own the land where her house, which was, as you said, not a house that we would recognize, Mm -hmm. um, was, and so it, it outlined the steps you took the, the food supplements and repairing the sewing machine, her sewing machine, so that she could begin, um, creating clothes to sell. Yes. Eva's journey was very interesting, extremely malnourished and very depressed and recently lost her husband because she could not afford medications to treat his diabetes. And what often happens in families where the husband is either absent through death or abandonment is if you have an older teenage son, that male void will be um, occupied by a restless teenager who has no income and no hope for a future. And that's what was happening with her. So she was also in charge of her elderly in-laws, both of whom were ill um, and have subsequently passed away. So we were able to graduate Eva um, recently because we did everything from the ground up. We took down her thatched hut and purchased the land that her husband had left to her, but she had no funds for legal fees to secure the land in her name. And we can't build a house until we do that. She has a very nice, basic two bedroom concrete um, block home with a solid roof and a concrete floor, which she's never had before. We bought her a refrigerator. She had no beds. We purchased beds. We've educated her children, her son, who was the restless alpha male in the family, we have him in mechanics school now. So he has an outlet for his frustration. He's not a good student, but he's good with his hands. And when we bought her a refrigerator, she was then able to make tortillas and sell them out of her home. And then subsequently we built her a small tienda, which is the Spanish word for store Mm -hmm. on the property. And she sells the basic commodities that her neighbors need because they have to walk three miles to the nearest grocery. So she has been able to earn her own income. Um, Her kids are being educated, but we still have such a friendship with her because she is so resilient. And when we see her, to see her smile and, and be so far removed from that woman that was emotionally vacant from profound depression and malnutrition is really transformational. Our participants inspire us as much as we inspire them. I couldn't begin to live their lives. I've been through some catastrophic things in my own family. I was diagnosed with breast cancer last year, um, being the parent of adult children and um, all the things that come with being involved in family life. Um, We are not immune to those things in America or in Europe just because we have enough money in our bank. But the emotional resilience of these women is what keeps us going. Let's take a quick break. You're so passionate about this. And um, what do you want 
people to know about the women who you're serving? I would like people to know that we are all just one misstep away from the women that we assist in these countries. My analogy as a nurse, I always think about medical things, is if we took a thousand women from across the world, from every country in the planet, and had them pinprick their fingers and put a drop of blood on a piece of paper. And we stacked all of that paper up in a big pile and dispersed it back again to all the participants. Not one single person that received someone else's blood would be able to look at that little droplet and tell you whether that was a white woman or an African-American woman or an Asian woman or a Central American woman. You would not be able to tell from that drop of blood if that person was smart or undereducated, if they had money in the bank, if they were healthy or not healthy, if they were a mother of 16 or a mother of two. We all bleed red. We just do. That's how we were made. We were made um, for commonality and for communication and for caring. And the divisiveness in this world is from politics. It comes from government. It comes from secluding ourselves and lacking that sense of community that used to exist in our world much more than it does now. And that community is what gets our women through their day. I, I look at some of our participants and think, how do they get up in the morning? I'd be curled up in the fetal position in the corner telling the kids to go entertain themselves if it were me. But they do. They get up with the resilience to face the hardships that they have. And some of it's because they have a sense of community. Their friends don't have anything more than they do. But we are more alike than we are unalike. It really highlights your belief in, in connection and how connection is a, such an important mechanism for healing our world. Um, how have you seen this exemplified in the work you do? Another um, example really is our board. Our board are all volunteers from across the United States. There's eight of us that are just so deeply passionate about the power of a few people to change things for not just our participants, but their children. This is about generational change. And I can't help but think as we see more people during COVID slipping into unsustainable poverty that... Mm -hmm. Once you slip into that space, it's incredibly hard to get out of that organizations that are doing our kind of work are going to be more and more important as we come out on the other side, hopefully, of this pandemic. Um, but the thing that keeps us going and continuing to grow our organization is the the stories of the people that were able to change. We have graduated over 300 women from our women's development center that we started in Egypt. I went over to Egypt with Marguerite in 2017. And soon after we had a, a whole floor that we rented with um, industrial sewing machines with teachers that were so um, knowledgeable in their field of either baking or sewing or cosmetology. And each woman that took advantage of those classes 
um, that went on to graduate and go through our graduation program, the vast majority of them are now doing their own businesses. We gave them uh, a grant so that they could get their supplies. They now have hairstyling shops. One of them is sewing car covers and has employed members of her own family in her business. So those kind of things are in that moment for that person, such a ray of hope and it grows within the community. And when the story gets out that we have this center or that we have emergency food or that we have a healthcare clinic where they're gonna get free medication and be seen by a real doctor that they can't afford it just grows the hope in that community and sparks that joy that we're trying to transmit to make the world a better place. But it's not just us. There's so many amazing organizations out there. And that's why I so appreciate your podcast to share that good work that's being done. There is so much great work being done. And, and it's why, why I started this is because I think um, in really small ways and then really big ways people are making such a difference in other people's lives. And what I, I find so um, beautiful and and truly unique about your organization is the way you are creating that generational change, you know, by going in one woman's life and setting up her children for success as well. Mm -hmm. That's generations and generations who are better off and who may be able to carve a life out of poverty um, when it may have stopped right there. Absolutely. Absolutely. My, my favorite story about that is uh, a young girl named Estella who was 14 when we took her. And I have a picture of her standing in front of her house, which is just a few boards tied together with twine. It's Mm. leaning and there's only half of a roof and a dirt floor and her mother had five children. She was the oldest, but there was a spark in her, the, the abysmal poverty she had grown up with in this deep recessive part of the mountains of Guatemala had not yet tainted her. And we took her out of that situation and put her in boarding school through a friend that has an amazing boarding school in this area. We paid her boarding school fees for four years and then she wanted to be a nurse. So we paid her nursing school tuition for another three years. And then we sent her to several areas of the country to learn internship as a nurse and to learn what nonprofit work looked like um, as a nurse. She's now employed full-time as a nurse, met a wonderful man that she would have never had even contact with because he's also educated. If she had not left her little barrio in the mountains of Guatemala and gone to school. They're married. They have a four-month-old. And Estella and her husband now do our monthly clinic in a tiny village in uh, western northwestern Guatemala where there's no access to medical care. And because she's from that area and she speaks the dialect, she's welcomed in this village where they typically would be scared of outsiders. Mm-hmm. They supply the medicine, all the equipment that she needs to run this clinic. There's 90% pediatric malnutrition in this area. And she has a relationship with these people. They trust her. She does prenatal care all the way up to elder care. And we just started that two months ago because we were waiting for her to be in a position to be able to do that. 
She is so joyful about taking this work to this mountain and so happy to be able to assist us. We pay her a small salary monthly to help her and her family because they exist. As a nurse, she makes $780 US per month. That's not as much money as it sounds like in Guatemala. So she's doing this from her heart, but it also helps her family while she helps us. It's a community project that we dreamed of for a long time, but it had to be just the right person to do it. And we never would have guessed years ago when we plucked her off of that mountain uh, while we fed her family and housed her family and built them a new house. So they benefited also, but she benefited generationally. So her child, who's just a few months old, is being raised by educated parents who have the means to, to bring him into the world and educate him. And it all started through finding freedom. So I'm very, very proud of her. Yeah. I talk a lot about, um, waves of change and, and Mm -hmm. that's, that's a story that so beautifully illustrates the ripple effect of pouring into a person's life. And now it's, it's a person, it's micro and moving out to that macro level of a community and families and people who you wouldn't be able to reach um, because now you have someone in the, the local area who is able to then spread that even further, exactly. spread that good work. Yeah. To university female students in Egypt that we're so proud of would not have been able to go to college without finding freedom scholarship and we expect big things from those girls and they know it and they're prepared to deliver and they will be change agents within their community. So it mm-hmm. is very much a ripple effect. Yeah. So Jody, you have been volunteering in this space and you've said that's, you know, you're able, you feel privileged to be able to volunteer, but you've been volunteering for, um, you know, this type of cause for 20 years, 20 plus years. And so I'm curious what it is that motivates you. What, what inspires you to serve in this way? I grew up, my, my father moved us to, from Long Island, New York to rural Kentucky when I was five. And you wouldn't think that that would have made such an imprint on me, but we were fish out of water in rural Kentucky. We had these New York accents (laughs) and My parents brought a sense of inclusivity and belonging that they grew up in New York with um, to an insular community in rural Kentucky that had never really seen people from New York before. They were, my neighbors were puzzled about why we were there. I was puzzled about why we were there. My father took a job there, but um, he was, um, a learner. Both my parents were professionals. My mother was a nurse. My great-grandmother was a nurse. My aunt was a nurse. So I grew up wanting to be a nurse at the time when I I was born in 57. So there were many fewer options. You were either a nurse, a secretary, or a teacher, pretty much. But um, I grew up listening to BBC radio when dad would take me to work. I mean, to school, I'm sorry while he was on his way to work. And that taught me that there's a world out there that I had no access to growing up in this tiny town long before people jumped on a plane and went somewhere. Mm. 
So I think part of my longing to reach out was the fact that I was suddenly put in this place where we had no family. We had no aunts and uncles or cousins or grandparents for at least a thousand miles. And I was seeking relationships and that combined with my natural caregiving tendencies and then going on to become a pediatric hematology nurse combined the need for deep, meaningful relationships with my also intrinsic need to um, be a caretaker. And we were not wealthy by any means. We were probably a little bit on the other spectrum, but at the time you don't realize it. But I always grew up um, very grateful because in Appalachia, I saw people who had much less than we did. Mm-hmm. It instilled in me a sense of gratitude that I had what we did have. And, and my parents, unfortunately, had a very, um, very difficult marriage that resulted in a divorce. So that also taught me that a mother of five that my mother was, um, who had a lot of emotional chaos in her life and financial instability could not be emotionally present for us in the way that she would have wished for. So those things of being transplanted, looking for relationships, wanting to give back appreciation for what I had and an understanding of how difficult it is to be a present mother when you don't have the basic needs for your children created in me the unspoken uh, dream for this this, um, nonprofit. It didn't have words. It didn't have a logo. It didn't have meaning yet, but I brought all of that to the table in 2009 when it finally formulated from those experiences. It just all came together. It did in a way. um, Oprah used to say, God has a dream for you that you didn't even dream for yourself. And, but once I met Maria in Guatemala, I had that aha moment that this is what I've been seeking. And this is what we as a board are now capable of. I didn't have a board at the time. I called my brother who had gone to Guatemala with me for years and said, this is my dream. Will you help me do it? So he joined the board and slowly we found other people. It's very much a group effort. So is there anything else you'd like to share about um, the organization or um, anything about the work you do or what you see that you feel like is missing? I think I would just like to share with the listeners that they should not feel like this is something that they couldn't do or don't have any interest in. And therefore it's of no interest to them as listeners, because I have such a passionate belief that everybody has one of three things. We all either have time, treasure, or talent. And whether it's to just be the just to have the talent to be a good friend, a good listener, um, a good hugger, or a good teacher or lawyer or doctor. It doesn't matter, but everybody has a gift, whether you're just baking a loaf of bread and taking it to someone who's shut in by COVID and leaving it on their front porch. And that is the gift of love for that day. And you can be five years old to a hundred years old and still have something to offer. So no one should feel like they need to start their own nonprofit to make a difference in the world. We 
we are given our talents when we're born and it's up to us to develop them or not. But even if you're just giving within your own immediate family, um, it's something to offer to make the world a better place. We are for the most part so gifted, whether it's your attitude that helps someone through a hard day, it doesn't have to be something tangible. I really love that. And, um, want to just share again, because I think those three things are so beautifully, um, said that time treasure and talent, and we all have one of those three each day that we can, we can give to our family, our neighbors, or our community in some way. Absolutely. And um, that has been a hallmark of mine for a long time. A very wise board member taught me that years ago. And it was one of those nuggets that when people come to me and say, I don't really know what I have to offer your organization. And so we'll go through that bucket list and they generally find something that they hadn't thought of. But there's just no other way to get around the things that are happening in our world right now unless we work together as a community and it can be a community of two people or a community of thousands um, to try and uplift somebody. Jody, what is a quote that you carry with you? Um, I think one of my favorites and I have this, I bought it at an art fair. It's a, a picture that says the purpose of life is a life of purpose. And even as a child growing up in rural Kentucky, when I would take drives and see people sitting on their rockers on their front porch, I'd think, why aren't they up doing something? (laughs) We came from busy Long Island where everybody was scurrying around. And then in rural Kentucky, they're sitting there rocking. I then was, when I was an adult, realized that they are doing something. They're communing with nature or they're conversing with each other or they're developing relationships. But for me, I had to be up and doing. And so this nonprofit administration definitely fills my sense of purpose because there's always something to be done. And um, for me, it's being done in a positive way and a life-changing way. We have now helped over 9,000 women and children into different countries in 10 years. And that's significant help. It's not just handing out a bag of rice. It's education, it's shelter, it's better health, it's hope, it's sustainability. It feels it feels good to have occupied this earth in my short amount of time here to be able to say that. Yeah, to find that purpose, that life yeah. of purpose. That's right. Thank you so much for being on and sharing the story, your story, your journey, and also the story of finding freedom through friendship. Thank you. It's such an honor to represent our participants through this forum. Meeting Jody and learning a small bit about the big waves they're serving women and children around the globe was a true gift. And I don't know about you, but she just left me thinking about the small ways we can all bring our purpose to life each day. To learn more about the organization or to contribute, go to finding-freedom-through-friendship.org, and I'll link it in the show notes along with the other resources we mentioned in the interview. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. 
And most importantly, share it with your friends. I imagine there's at least one person in your life who needs to hear these messages of hope and inspiration. Thanks for listening to the Good Around Us podcast. Until next time.